Oftentimes, it's better to start with creativity to help you learn the facts. Life is too short to learn a, a list of a thousand rando words. From the campus of Stanford University, this is Schools In with your hosts, Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. Welcome to Schools In. I'm Denise Pope, senior lecturer with the Graduate School of Education here at Stanford, and I'm with my co-host, Dan Schwartz, Dean of the Graduate School of Education. And I should point out that we are actually not together due to COVID. We are doing the radio show from our homes and our guest will be doing that as well. Hello, Dr. Policy Pope. Oh, Policy Pope. I'm yeah, okay. We're, we're going to talk about tough questions around policy, particularly for uh, children with disabilities. Okay. I, I, I want to sort of warm up to the topic. And so I, I have heard that superintendents on average last about two and a half to three years before they have to leave. Have you heard this statistic before? Before they have to leave or before they want to leave? Before they leave. Okay. Because <laughs> is that, I'm just wondering, is that burnout or is that they made a decision and then a couple of years later, they're paying for that decision? That, that was supposed to be my question to you. Uh, oh. <laughs> so, so I think the answer is that uh, every time they make a decision, somebody loses, mm. right? So they make a decision to spend money one way and another group doesn't get it. And it's around education and education is very local when people care about their own stuff. So I think the superintendents get a thousand cuts, you know, yeah. and eventually, eventually they've made decisions that have upset everybody, you know, well, as they've gone around the room. Isn't it impossible to make everybody happy? And I know Larry Cuban had this great term called satisficing, that it's a kind of combination. You, there's no way you can make everyone happy. So you have to compromise. Right. And it's sacrifice, it's, sacrifice plus uh, satisfy. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. It came from Herb Simon. Did it? So okay. That, yeah, so there. So here, here's a different kind of policy problem, uh, which is predicting effects down the line that you don't know about. So uh, this year, uh, we've had a pandemic. We've had Black Lives Matter. Uh, we've had a budget crisis. And so as dean, I've had to make policy decision after policy decision. And each time you try and figure out what are the downstream impacts of this going to be, you think it through as far as you can. And then it turns out you miss something, right? And so it, it backfires and, and some people really get hurt, even though you were trying to help, right? And, and I think that's that's a very tough policy decision where people are trying to make policies that can anticipate the future. And so uh, our guest thinks about this in the context of children with disabilities. So wait, can I just say one thing, yeah. Dan? Are, yeah. does this, is this you saying you're leaving in two and a half years because everything that you decided over COVID is going to come down to haunt us in two and a half years? Are you like <laughs> on that same trajectory as the superintendents? I'm just curious. Uh, no, I hadn't put it together. Yeah, you're right. Damn, <laughs> who knew? <laughs> look out, look out. I didn't realize that was one of the unanticipated policy uh, knock-ons is that I would go. get fired. There you go. There you go. Okay, sorry. No, I'm very excited about our guest today. Yeah, go yeah. ahead. So, uh, so anyway, uh, kids with disabilities, uh, you know, you need legislation around this to get resources. And you have all these uh, other other effects that you sort of didn't anticipate or you couldn't anticipate things like the names that you give suddenly become shackles for children. So uh, it's my pleasure to get some clarity from Alfre Alfredo Artides, 
who is a professor at the Graduate School of Education and the previous dean of the Graduate School of Education at Arizona State University. His research focuses on understanding and addressing educational inequities related to the intersections of disability with other difference markers, such as race, language, and gender. So thank you, Alfredo. Thank you, Dan. It's a pleasure to join you and Denise today. <clears throat> so what, uh, here, here's a, a starter question. Um, what is the most common sort of policy mistake you see in school districts? Well, it, you know, disability is a very interesting category of human experience. And when we approach this uh, need in schools to serve the, the, the educational needs of these students, we bring a lot of attention to individualized programs. And oftentimes we try to do that in very unique ways, sometimes leaving out uh, certain considerations related to the experiences of students, for example, germane to race, social class and language. So as we apply the policies of special education to individualize and to serve the needs, sometimes we see policies applied in a way that might segregate certain students by virtue of their learning or behavioral disability or physical disability or sensory disability. So that's an interesting example of how we bring forth attention, equity, attention to the needs of certain groups. And we might end up pushing them out to be segregated for most of the school day. So that will be a, a classic example of how we end up having bad consequences to good intentions. Is that a normal uh, sort of thing that, the, that kids are taken out of the classroom and given the special services that is needed? Like how, how prevalent is that? Because I hear, I hear the word mainstream a lot, which right. to me means that they're not taken out. Am I wrong? Well, not necessarily. You're not supposed to segregate them. I mean, there is a principle within the policy of uh, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, IDEA, that calls for the principle of the least restrictive environment. Mm. The idea is that you provide the services to these students in the setting in which they're going to have the least restriction in terms of accessing the curriculum and other peers who are not disabled. So in principle, you are supposed to aspire to that, to keep them in the mainstream. In fact, in the US, the vast majority of students with disabilities are being educated in ordinary schools. That doesn't mean they're not, they're being educated in so-called mainstream classrooms. Now we use the term general education classrooms uh, because sometimes the needs of certain students are so pervasive and so intense that they need different settings, smaller groups, more intense attention from staff. And for that reason, they are placed in settings in which they are so-called separate from the rest of their peers. So it varies, it's a very individualized decision. However, there are circumstances in which we see certain groups being placed in more segregated settings, even though they have special education needs, the principle of LRE, the least restrictive environment, is not always applied evenly across the board. So second language is one good example of that. If you are an English learner and you are diagnosed with learning disabilities, for very specific bureaucratic institutional reasons, you may end up being placed in a separate room, depending on the state in which you're living, and your language supports are withdrawn or reduced significantly for different reasons. It can be 
lack of coordination between funding streams to maintain language supports while you are also getting special education supports or other reasons. Um, so it's, it's a very complex picture that you see in how you apply this decision of where you get educated. But there are clear patterns in certain regions of the country where language, social class, and race can play a role. So how, how does it get decided whether a child's going to get uh, pulled, up, pulled out of class, basically? Well, once the child is referred and assessed by a team of interdisciplinary professionals, uh, the team comes together and they review the evidence. And at that meeting, there are decisions that are, that decisions are made to determine what kinds of program this student needs, the kinds of services beyond education that might be needed in terms of related disciplines, physical therapy, speech language pathology, et cetera. Uh, and in that, at that point, the team will decide the best placement for that individual given the needs. And, the and it is, available. is that where the bias slips into the system in that decision point? It's not, I don't think it's purely the decision of individuals saying we're going to do this to the kid. I think it's, it's a more complex web of inferences. Sometimes uh, decisions are based on the availability of the settings that this, need, that this child might need. Um, it might be parents pushing for using uh, public funding for separate, say, private placement for very specific reasons. It could be uh, availability of staff that they may need to send the kid to a different facility. Uh, it can be availability of staff uh, to provide services in different configuration of programs. Some districts might have what is called multi-tier systems of support in which students are accessing different configurations of services. So it's, it's a combination of availability of resources, funding streams, and professionals. Hmm. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We are speaking with Alfredo Artiles. Uh, who studies students with disabilities and all the difficult decisions that have to go into making policy in the best interest of these kids. Uh, although although this, yeah. doesn't, this isn't quite policy. This is more local decision-making. Well, it's, it, how do you decide? I mean, I, okay, if I'm a teacher, I know this kid needs physical therapy. Uh, you can't just keep making the school day longer and say, well, the kid will, will do all of the therapy. He'll, he'll be mainstreamed all the way through or he'll, he won't be pulled out. I, I want to use the right words, Alfredo. But then he gets all of his therapy after school. Like that's that's kind of impossible, right? Like, isn't he going to have to miss some of the general ed classes by nature? Most, most likely. Most likely you will have access to a so-called resource room where you go for certain periods of the day to get the support and the interventions you need in certain areas. For example, a very common area is reading and writing. So you go to a resource room to work in a smaller setting with a small group of students. And there is a special education teacher that works with you on very specific goals that are written up in the individualized educational plan, the IEP. And you go there for a couple of periods a day, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on your needs. So it is, that's probably the most common configuration of services because the vast majority of students with disabilities have what is described as mild types of disabilities. These are disabilities that are related to cognitive issues, related to acquisition of literacy and math, as well as behavioral issues. Uh, students with sensory disabilities tend to be a smaller group. So the vast majority of students with disabilities in the U.S. have what is called high incidence or mild disabilities. So that, that, sorry, the policy sounds great. 
you pull the kids in a room where they're working in smaller groups. They get more attention. Uh, the, the attention's quite focused. It's individualized, I assume. It, it sounds like such a good policy. So what, what was the, the bad effect was if the kids are there, they're, they're not participating in the rest of life in the classroom? There is that effect that you want as a principle of inclusion to have all students interact with students with disabilities because that expands the horizon for these learners. They form friendships, they get socialized to the peer culture, they improve their language use to some extent. Uh, uh, all of that, as you suggested, is, is really uh, great. However, it doesn't always get applied that way, unfortunately. I mean, you see, for example, that um, people critique the IEP, the Individualized Educational Pro, uh, Pro Plans, because it doesn't have enough rigor. The expectations reflected in the goals and the uh, curriculum offered to these students tend to be lower. Uh, the access to courses that are, will allow them to have a high school diploma or access to higher education are going to be reduced because you're not going to be exposed to experiences that will prepare you for that. Uh, there is research showing that when students, when you compare students by race, African-American students tend to be placed in more segregated settings for a larger portion of the day than white students with the same diagnosis. Or black students might have access to fewer related services uh, in other disciplines than white kids with the same disability diagnosis. So you begin to see a play, the interaction of uh, very complex institutional implicit bias as well as contextual issues. This is Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz. We're talking with Alfredo Artiles about the complexity of really making decisions for students with disabilities, trying to balance what's best for the kid, what's best for, you know, what makes sense given the staff and the needs. Uh, it's no wonder that principals leave. I mean, like, there's, it doesn't sound like there's an easy win here that's going to make everyone happy. What, what are your thoughts here, Alfredo? Yeah, Alfredo. So how do we solve the paradox? Solve the problem for us. Well, that's a million dollar question. We did a study a few years ago in 11 countries looking at inclusive education. You know, the answer has been, let's make all schools inclusive. By that, they suggest that we need to reconfigure the structures of schools, the curriculum, the preparation of the staff, the policies should be attentive to the uh, whole range of human differences. We need to build cultures of schools that are attentive to this heterogeneity. Uh, leadership training should be mindful of uh, ability differences. Uh, family and community engagement should be concerned with attention to access to these support services for kids with more ex ex uh, extensive needs. Uh, the schools should be organized around systems of support at multiple levels from the general education classroom to kids who have more intensive needs and you move kids in that set of tiers of support. As you can see, we're talking about systemic change. We're talking about changing not only the training of the teachers or merely placing a student from a segregated classroom to the general education classroom. I've been in classrooms where kids with autism might be placed in a general education classroom with hardly any other support, all in the name of inclusion. That is not inclusion. The curriculum has not been changed. The space in the classroom has not uh, been transformed. Peers are not prepared for having a student who is different coming into the classroom. I mean, it's, it's a multidimensional set of efforts. And it's critical that when we 
approach this work, we embark on the transformation of all of those aspects. When we did that study around 10 countries in Europe, Africa, and Asia, we found that inclusive education was oftentimes used as a tool of exclusion, that kids were placed in so-called inclusive programs as a way of putting them in separate schools. In, in U.S. vocabulary, those might have been special education schools that are completely separate from the rest of the educational system. And we saw that that happened to certain uh, groups in society. So in Spain was the Moroccan kids and the gypsy kids. In Austria was the uh, gypsy students. In England were Pakistanis and uh, traveler workers, mostly from Ireland. Uh, in Sweden were African refugees and so on and so forth. So it was interesting how this very uh, idea of being more inclusive was in effect being used to create differences in treatment and responses to them. And so in answering your question is twofold. Take a systemic approach, change the system, not beyond just moving people from one space to another. And the other one is maintain a reflective stance towards the implementation of that model so that you don't end up using the idea of inclusive education to separate groups. It's, it's so paradoxical that they would think that that by moving them to a whole separate school, that that was inclusive. I don't even understand how they could justify that. Right. I, I was blown away. In Germany, I, I asked to see an, an inclusive school and I went to a school that was 98% immigrant students. So they use that 2% and say there's 2% there. That means it's inclusive. I don't know why they use inclusive to separate people. It was a very puzzling use of the term. Well, if all of you are puzzled, uh, there's more. We're going to come back and, and, and talk with our guest, Alfredo Artiles. You are listening to Schools In with Denise Pope and Dan Schwartz, and we will have more with Alfredo next on SiriusXM. You're listening to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. So it is hard to predict what the future will be. The focus is really on academics. From the campus of Stanford University. Welcome back to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Alfredo Artiles today about students with disabilities and really the complexity of making decisions about how best to serve them, particularly this paradox of trying to help them at the same time you're pulling them out of what they would maybe need to be around their peers and around their friends and around in their general education class. So Alfredo, is there is there like a deeper paradox in just how we think about disabilities? I believe so. I mean, it's it's disability teaches us a great deal about human nature by looking at these paradoxes. We should remember that disability is it's really a fascinating dimension of the human experience. Uh, in fact, I will claim disability is a universal category. All human beings will experience it in one way or another during their lifetime. It is not uncommon to hear that we have relatives and people who have been around us all our lives with disabilities. We might face disability as a consequence of aging or health threats or accidents. And in fact, uh, disability studies scholar Chris Bell said that disability is, quote, arguably the only identity that one can acquire in the course of an instant. So we, we should be mindful of that, that disability is everywhere. We tend to think about this really small group of people in society. It is not. We, it's, it's everywhere in our lives. And we need to remember that on the one hand, it offers a great deal of great responses. I always think about disability as having a dual nature. When I was a teacher, I worked as a special education teacher and administrator. 
and I was a volunteer in Special Olympics for a number of years, I saw the incredible opportunities that special education opened for children, youth, and their families. It gave them hope. It contributed to their integration in communities. So in that sense, disability was an object of protection. We responded in positive ways, but at the same time, as I was suggesting earlier, disability can be used to relegate away from the center of society, especially when we see it intersecting with other markers like race and social class and language, et cetera. And you know, when we look at the, at the scholarship in history, we see that disability has been interlaced with race and language and social class in very complicated ways. And we have to be mindful of the fact that that means that moving forward, we need to be attentive to the intersections of disability with those areas and ask more subtle, nuanced questions. Where is disability intersection with, say, race consequential? When does it happen? To whom? Under what circumstances? Who is present or absent when those intersections matter or are consequential in those settings? How do we begin to bring to the design of programs and inclusive schools those questions so that we are mindful of the dual nature of disability that can really advance and open major opportunities for people in their education, but also can be used with really bad consequences? That are unintentional. Like, I feel bad, you know, these are well-meaning people who are trying to do the right thing, but there's so many problems. You know, you want your English language learner to get the resources that they need, but you also want them to get the resources they need as a student with a disability. And by the way, I just want to make it clear to our audience, ELL is not, just because you're an English language learner does not mean that you are a student with disability, right? I just want to make that clear. But I do know that there is a overrepresentation of uh, students who are classified as having a disability because of race or uh, language, et cetera. Is that, is that right, Alfredo? It, it has to be qualified. Yes, there is a problem of uh, disproportionate identification, but you need to qualify by where you're looking at the problem. For example, English learners are not overrepresented in special education at the national level. They are overrepresented in certain regions and states mm. or districts. So the, the analysis of this problem has to be situated in very specific circumstances. And there is a lot of discussion about this. And I, I love the clarification you made about English language learners uh, not being disabled by nature of their second language. Many school practitioners, by the way, are struggling with that question. How do I make sense of that? Is this English learner struggling to learn to read in English because he or she has a learning disability or because the student hasn't learned English? Everybody, a lot of people are struggling with that question, and there is not enough research providing answers to that. Uh, so it's an unfolding, increasing concern among many people in the country. This is Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. We are talking with Alfredo Artiles, and it just keeps getting more complex. This, this whole show about students with disabilities and what, how teachers and policymakers um, and parents think about what's best for them. So, Alfredo, you, you said... Uh... It, it needs to be a system change. I don't see that happening all at once. Where do you take your first step when doing systems change? I, I think the district, the school district is a good unit of change. You, it's an intermediary a structure in the system. You have uh, a little more latitude in a number of ways to make decisions and investments. 
And uh, when we had a national center providing technical assistance with my colleagues, we targeted the school district level, even though our first engagement was with the state Department of Education. Um, so I will start at the district level. Uh, communities can teach us a great deal about this. I mean, I did some work many years ago as a consultant. I uh, have a background in psychology and did some work with refugees in Central America during the revolutionary years in the early mid nineties. And I remember going to this valley on the border between Nicaragua and Honduras. There were 5,000 refugees in that valley. And there were many casualties of war living in the valley. They had uh, you know, amputated individuals, people who suffer from uh, what was happening in the war. And we did a lot of focus groups and interviews during the time we were there, trying to understand the needs and the demands of the community. There were, the people with disabilities were highly visible in the life of that community. In all of the interviews and, and uh, focus groups we had, nobody, not a single person alluded to physical disability or sensory disability as a, a component or an issue or a need this community had. These people were directly involved in the maintenance of the community. There were cleaning areas, there were building, uh, places and they were involved in preparation of food, etc. So to me, that was a huge lesson in how we engage with disability and respond to it. And back to your question, Dan, I think a big part of that was the way in this in which these people engage with each other and how they conceptualize what it meant to belong in that community. So I think it starts with communities and it starts with districts. If you have leadership committed to an inclusive vision. I don't mean to be you know, sounded idealistic. I mean, I know how hard it is to produce this kind of change, uh, especially when you throw race and class in the mix. Um, however, I think uh, we have evidence from certain projects and initiatives around the country in which you see people rallying around the idea of inclusive education and making a difference. Well, that gives me some hope, which I think, and I love that story because the only way that the community became that way is because of how integrated those people already were, right? So your whole point about the importance of inclusion is how are we all going to learn to live together as a community and make everybody feel included? If you keep pulling people out, then you do see it as other. Right. And by the way, this is always unfinished work. You never arrive at a point in which you say we have an inclusive system or school or district. You still have to have that reflexivity built in the process because we just slip back into a number of things of, in terms of creating different hierarchies of participation and belonging in communities. I mean, that's the way it happens, unfortunately. This is why we have to satisfy to go back to the very beginning of this, right? I mean, you know, Dan, you, you were talking about looking ahead and predicting all the problems, and you need a lot of thinkers to really play it through. Well, it, maybe it's more like uh, running the rapids. You, you know you're going following the stream, but you have to make course corrections all the way, as opposed to like setting sail across the ocean, where you set your decision once and for all. So I don't know if these uh, these systems that you've been looking at that are successful, if, if they're built to be reflective and adapt to how it's going, or maybe that's a leadership question. I don't know. I think it's, it's largely a leadership issue that you can actually shape the culture and the tone of that uh, community. Alfredo, thank you so much for being here. I, I learned so much. I know our listeners did. I want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Pope. 
If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the SiriusXM app and anywhere you listen to podcasts. From the campus of Stanford University, this has been Schools In with Dan Schwartz and Denise Poe on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online or with the SiriusXM app. 